our devices are listening to us. Previous generations of audio technology transmitted, recorded or manipulated sound. Today are digital voice assistants, smart speakers and a growing range of related technologies are increasingly able to analyze and respond to it as well. Scientists and engineers increasingly refer to this as machine listening, though the first widespread use of the term was in computer music. Machine listening is much more than just a new scientific discipline or vein of technical innovation however. It is also an emergent field of knowledge power, of data extraction and colonialism, of capital accumulation, automation and control. It demands critical and artistic attention. Stefan Meyer's 2018 dossier on machine listening for technosphere puts the work of artists like George Lewis, Jennifer Walsh, Florian Hecker, and Marianne Amica into conversation with Google's WaveNet. Artists Sean Docray, legal scholar James Parker, and curator Joel Stern talk to Stefan about these and other works along with Stefan's own compositions which treat machine listening as a prepared instrument, ready to be deterred. Well, Stefan, would you maybe just begin by introducing yourself, however makes sense for you? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm Stefan Meyer. I'm a, I'm a composer, uh, primarily of electronic music. I'm uh, born and raised in Vancouver, Canada, which is where I, I am right now. I was in Berlin for a little bit working as a composer, and then I uh, studied in the States. And now I teach at Simon Fraser University here in Vancouver. I teach electronic music. I kind of work between the experimental electronic music world um, contemporary classical music and then multimedia installation. What kind of unifies all of it is a examination of both emergent and historical sound technologies. And in that, I try to highlight kind of material instability or unruliness. And um, yeah, I'm really interested in kind of mapping the flows of kind of chaotic sonic matter. And in that mapping, I'm always trying to uncover alternate modes of both authorship and listening practices possible within the specific technologically mediated situation. Yeah, I guess for me, like really one of the primary departure points for my work is this uh, idea of prepared instrument. I'm, I'm trained as a, a classical composer primarily. And yeah, all of my work is always kind of trying to investigate the specificity of the, um, of the, the technical apparatus itself and then trying to coax out uh, a certain kind of logic, a certain kind of strangeness, and attending to the specificity of that. So the reason why I bring up prepared instruments is just because that's that's kind of been an ongoing fixation of mine. So, you know, Cage, John Cage puts bolts and various objects into piano strings and defamiliarizes this kind of like historically wrought instrument such that, you know, it creates this kind of uh, a sound which you know he was aspiring to make it sound like a gamelan orchestra and there's a long history of preparing instruments kind of tinkering with instruments and dealing with like the technical possibilities of an instrument to bring out kind of like a let's say repressed character of that instrument or transforming it to something else and i guess for me that's kind of like a primary point of departure regardless of what i'm i'm doing and like i say that manifests itself in a variety of different contexts. Like I have a classical music practice, 
like I, I write for ensembles uh, quite regularly. And then I, yeah, I, I do a lot of improvised electronics and then I do these kind of uh, increasingly larger scale multimedia um, installations. Um, Stefan, could, could you just expand a little bit on, on sort of the idea of, you know, machine listening at, as a kind of pre prepared instrument, you know, machine listening as, as something that can be instrumentalized by a composer? Yeah, sure. Happily. I guess, yeah, much like, I mean, in parallel to the, the idea that I was talking about with the piano, I'm with, with these machine listening tools, I'm really interested in kind of deterring the technical possibility space that's kind of given to me and trying to place these tools in context where the kind of like latent unruliness can kind of come out. So for me, oftentimes I'm using these, uh, these technical objects as kind of black boxes, which then I place into specific contexts that are really outside of where they were designed for. Um, so using speech synthesizers, but not speaking to them, uh, you know, in the way that they were designed, but rather, you know, having them converse with, yeah, I don't know, like a soundscape even, or yeah, just, I mean, in the case of the, um, what I speak about in the dossier, um, this idea of just kind of letting the speech synthesizer just kind of generate its glosses. I mean, sometimes I'm also actually intervening with the, the code. So I work with technologists who uh, will possibly mistrain um, a neural network. That's what I did in a, in a recent project, this Deviant Chain project, where we mistrained uh, a speech synthesizer such that it generated its own language um, based on its kind of incomplete training. And for me, I really see that as being parallel to this logic of taking kind of a ready-made, a cello, uh, uh, a piano or something, and then trying to, um, yeah, remove it from its context such that then it starts to do something else. But again, always specific to the technical possibilities that are afforded. Like I'm not really interested in kind of like, like fanciful alteration. I'm interested in actually investigating what's going on under the hood, if that makes sense. Think, thinking about under the hood and speech synthesizers, you, your curatorial essay begins with a discussion of WaveNet. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was just wondering if you could uh, talk a little bit about what it is about WaveNet that sort of interests you and how WaveNet kind of acts as this entry point into uh, your particular interest in machine listening. WaveNet was kind of like the um, the catalyst that got me interested in all this stuff in the first place. I mean, I, I wasn't particularly interested in even even artificial intelligence up until I read this this essay that that Google released when WaveNet was first kind of uh, released. I mean, on one hand, you have a tool which is you know one of the most streamlined kind of speech synthesizers ever ever made. You know, as I note in the essay, it kind of easily passes the the Turing test. It's extremely mutable. The training is kind of like you know it, it has no parallel. It's like a technical achievement insofar as it can, you know, I mean, it's now employed in Google Assistant and all these things. But I was really interested that even in this kind of, um, as I say, kind of like streamlined application of machine listening, you also have this possible, this possibility of kind of, I guess what I, I, I think about it in terms of like really like digital objection or something like this, where um, when the speech synthesizer is left to its own you know, le left on its own or it's, or it's allowed to kind of just speak freely without a human interlocutor, you know, it generates these strange glosses 
which correspond to, to no kind of like known human language. So I was really interested in this kind of this duality, I guess, that here we have like Google, this kind of technical giant generating this tool, which is like kind of incredible to, uh, if, if, if you're trying to, yeah, I mean, have um, computer human interactions be as seamless as possible from kind of a normative perspective. But then at the same time, with the same code, you have um, this kind of, this strangeness, which, which can kind of come up to the surface. And so I was really interested in kind of like parsing out how, how to reconcile that ambivalence, that, that paradox. I guess the, yeah, the, the technology's oscillation between like, you know, it's um, technical constitution, which is capable of both realism and objection. And then also what we've projected onto it as being this kind of the voice of Google Assistant. And so, yeah, I guess for me in the dossier, that that's a that's a really central paradox, the oscillation between uh, yeah, rational objectivity and then a projected subject position, which is kind of never never really fully congruous, if that makes sense. So so WaveNet really seemed like a yeah, a really good starting point for speaking about um, yeah, a lot of the the artists that I was interested in curating, especially somebody like uh, George Lewis, whose work I think really um, deals with a lot of these these ideas, at least implicitly. I'd love for you to draw out that connection between machine listening and music, a, a little or composition, or a little bit further, because you know it really comes through in the dossier that a lot of artists who've been working musicians who've been working with machine listening and for a very long time. And as far as I can tell, you know, at relatively early stage in the project, it's, it's really in musical context that the phrase machine listening starts to be taken up and used regularly as a result, I think, of Robert Rowe's um, book, uh, Interactive Music Systems, um, in the mm. 90s. But, but you know, you're, you're also tracing, you know, that we shouldn't get sort of bogged down in the, in the word, you know, or the phrase, because obviously um, somebody like George Lewis is working much earlier than that. And, and you discuss other artists too. Could, could you say a little bit about the kind of the history of machine listening techniques in music and the relationship between those two fields to the extent that they're different fields at all? And, you know, also like the methods, because what you were describing in terms of determinant isn't, not on my rudimentary understanding of George Lewis, exactly what he's trying to do with the machine listening um, systems he's working with. So yeah, that's a very open-ended question, but I just wonder. Yeah, it is. And it's, and it's kind of difficult to speak to in some ways because like I'm thinking about machine listening both in the context of applied artificial intelligence, but then also in a broader way. And as you know, like George Lewis, though, I think that he anticipates a lot of the things that I, I'm, I'm interested in that apply specifically to um, AI stuff. I mean, he, he hasn't really worked with like neural networks at all. I mean, that, that was technology that wasn't really, you know, at his disposal at the time. He's using, he's using machine listening in more of like kind of a, a, a broader sense. I'll, I'll speak a little bit to the, to the history of, yeah, the uses of specific, uh, yeah, kind of. I, I guess you're right. It, with Roe, it's it's more about like interactivity is really the the crux of the matter. And I think you're right that I mean, I after you sent that email, I I kind of um, 
yeah, I looked through some of my resources and it seems like that really is one of the earliest examples of that. Um, so, it's, so it's a fairly recent phenomena, but it, it's a very old, there are, there are other things that are in, in the history of electronic music, which are anticipate a lot of these ideas that, um, yeah, I mean, go back even to the, to the 60s. I think about somebody like Zanakis, where Yanis uh, Zanakis, the Greek composer, and his use of these like kind of, yeah, highly formalized mathematical systems that are were influenced by kind of ideas of human listening and then kind of um, allowing those uh, algorithmic systems to basically generate these extremely kind of incomprehensible jarring compositions. And this is, you know, this is, you can also speak about somebody like David Tudor who is doing something similar or Sabotnik. In terms of really like the first person who's using proto-machine listening software, I mean, I would say that it's, it is it is George Lewis where it's like a live interactive system where you have kind of machine which is um, actively responding to input which is coming out and then changing its behavior based on that. I mean, after Rainbow Family, which is where the first software was, was developed, he, he created a system called Voyager, which I believe does start to use kind of more, um, at least its most current iteration, has some machine listening underlying it. Yeah, so I would say that he's kind of like a, a major kind of, yeah, he anticipates a lot of the things that we're seeing now with like, you know, Holly Herndon and, um, and Empty Set and uh, Jennifer Walsh and all these people. So, so I, guess, I guess my answer is that George Lewis really is this kind of like central figure it's hard to um, generalize about, you know, what's actually going on like under the hood because the technology has changed so much. And frankly, I'm not a computer scientist or even a music technologist to really speak to that history in any, with really any depth, I guess. Um, you know, placing machine listening into a history of sort of proto-machine listening is really an important thing to do. Uh, at the same time as retaining some kind of specificity. I mean, could you maybe talk through some of the, the different artists' works that you gather in the dossier and some of the different things they're doing okay. with, with machine listening and or, or proto-machine listening? So you've already mentioned uh, Rainbow Family by George Lewis, but is there, is there sort of another good, good entry point into the dossier for you? Yeah, sure. I think that um, Jennifer Walsh's um, entry, which is Ultra Chunk, which, um, she worked uh, with the technologist artist Memo Atkin, who's kind of like a deep learning guru guy. I think that uh, like Jenny's contribution is kind of, yeah, in a way, I mean, uh, her and Florian are the only artists in the dossier. Florian Hecker are the only artists in the dossier who are working specifically with kind of like deep learning uh, machine listening software. Her work is really fascinating um, in my mind especially in light of like this, 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 this conversation of like of functional utility and then kind of objection where she improvised for many, many, many months and um, kind of cataloged these improvisations. And then machine listener was basically trained on all of her improvisations. So it was this kind of like this uh, musical subconscious or something like this, which then she improvises with in real time. I mean, it's also like an extremely bizarre piece of music. Like, it's just like so um, strange. I, I like when I when she sent me the recording, I was just like completely floored because it was just like so compositionally bizarre. And 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 she speaks very freely about like this premiere at Somerset House in London, where you know she was just kind of like blown away by 
you know, how she both identified certain elements of her compositional language and what was coming out. But at the same time, she felt like, you know, there were certain issues of like timing and also of kind of, let's say, improvisatory syntax, which were presented in this like totally abstracted and kind of warped, melted way where, um, yeah, it's like this kind of imperfect mirror where you think that you're projecting this um, self-portrait right, this very like intimate thing where she's improvising with herself every day in this like kind of daily practice, almost, I mean, I know my improvisatory practice is almost a meditative practice. And then having this, yeah, very personal thing kind of exploded and um, transformed into something which is, yeah, deeply uncanny and unsettling and all, uh, both for the, for, the, for the performer and then also for the audience member. I thought that, yeah, that was really kind of striking. That would be this kind of this 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 intimate gesture of kind of offering something to the to the the black box and then having something totally you know abject come out of it. Then on the other hand, you have somebody like Florian Hecker who's working with these very specific machine listening algorithms, which are designed to imitate the way that the human ear processes timbre, like the the quality of the sound. Yeah, it's just like totally you know kind of cutting edge. Um, computational model of how the ear processes this kind of, I guess, parameter, which is uh, very nebulous. Like if you read any literature on psychoacoustics, like the science of how humans kind of process um, sound and how human the human uh, human sensorium actually um, like really parses audio. Um, timbre is a very nebulous category that oftentimes described as like a wastebasket category. Anyway, so it's this kind of this algorithm, which was... Um, kind of designed to to unpack timbre, at least the way that it works cognitively. And Florian basically put in, he had the uh, a previously written composition basically resynthesized by this, this machine listening algorithm. And what ends up coming out is, again, this like very warped, strange, distorted thing, which doesn't draw comparison to the, to the original. So it's this kind of very detached, let's say, process where there's a, a rational um, kind of scientific model of listening, which then also distorts Florian's um, already very, very formalistic kind of compositional yeah, kind of practice. Um, so I feel like those are, those are two kind of like very radically different approaches that kind of like come back to this kind of this, the abject unruly output of, of these specific tools. Yeah, and then and then on the other hand, then you kind of have machine listening being dealt with in a more um, a broader, a more poetic way. I think with um, with both Ben Vida and C. Spencer Yeah, where Ben basically um, had uh, a text to speech synthesizer um, reading some of his kind of concrete poetry, and then from that, uh, and, and oftentimes um, a lot of text to speech synthesis is now employing kind of deep learning so as to have a more realistic model of the, the prosody and also the pronunciation of certain um, phonemes. Um, and he really worked with the kind of the idiosyncrasy facilitated by the specific text-to-speech synthesizer. And then that kind of produced all these interesting rhythms. And it, yeah, it, it's kind of in, in dialogue with much of his previous work, yeah, using a similar process of translation. Spencer, on the other hand, um, yeah, was really interested in using also um, a text-to-speech synthesizer, but to different ends. Um, he took three different models of three different kind of, let's say, uh, 
yeah, dialects of, um, of Cantonese, I believe. Yeah, it's Cantonese, which, uh, yeah, also the model was based in uh, machine listening. And then he fed the same kind of, the same text to the, to the three different speakers, um, such that, you know, like the, the uh, text-to-speech synthesizer became kind of confused and it created all these kind of also strange kind of sounds. And then Spencer kind of internalized those sounds and started to imitate them as kind of a fourth, third or fourth voice, which is kind of in contrapuntal dialogue with those things. So you have this kind of this, this feedback network, let's say, between the technical distortion and then um, Spencer then imitating that. For me, really also, uh, you know, a really important uh, person that, you know, couldn't contribute to the dialogue uh, of the dossier, but rather looms kind of above it in, in many different ways is the uh, American composer, Marianne Amishay, who was throughout her entire career was very much interested in the idea of computationally uh, assisted listening. So using like different, she was, she was kind of an, a devotee to people like Ballard and like J.G. Ballard and like Stanislaw Lem. And she was kind of interested in different futures where humans would be able to use different programs such that they would be able to hear like as a different animal. So have a, a program which can make you hear as a whale or can make you hear Beethoven underwater or hear uh, a Beethoven, yeah, uh, the same Beethoven symphony, you know, uh, under the atmospheres of like, you know, kind of like um, the Cambrian period or something like this. So that that's something that she wrote about a lot. And then in her um, unrealized media opera, intelligent life, she kind of imagines uh, an institute for computationally assisted listening where you can actually, you know, kind of export the way that any individual human kind of listens and then have that be a program, which could be something that then somebody could. So I could listen as as you. I could listen as whatever, Sam Cooke. I could listen as a early human, whatever. Um, I mean, Amishay's writings are all about this. And she yeah, she had this massive project that was supposed to be a, a kind of a television miniseries, which was all about, uh, yeah, very like campy uh, miniseries um, where, yeah, this this institute is kind of grappling with the epistemological issues of experiencing sound as an other. And so so Amy Simony, the um, uh, uh, American musicologist, yeah, she she writes a little bit about the the context that this work was coming out of. One thing about Aunt Marianne is that, like, I mean, basically everybody in the who participated in the dossier is is at least deeply influenced by uh, Marianne or, knew her in the case of George. Um, Florian's work, Florian Hecker's work, is really kind of, I think, a continuation in many ways of, of Amishay's project of kind of, yeah, literally trying to use technology to, to kind of like listen in, in, in kind of a, a different way. Yeah, I mean, I, I could speak about the, the, the others as well, if you like. Oh yeah, Terry Tamlitz. Yeah, Terry Tamlitz is... Um, presented um, the liner notes from a record that he did, I guess in the nineties. Terry's work doesn't really, has never worked with um, machine listening software specifically, but um, was really, yeah, I mean, uh, it's a record that came out on this kind of like glitch label, Mill Plateau in the nineties. And Terry's um, really fascinated by this idea of specific technologies having an understanding of um, a normative human underlying them and then using technology to kind of distort that image. So um, yeah, basically um, 
in a couple of Terry's records, there are um, a number of different source materials, which are oftentimes like very charged in terms of like the gender politics underlying the, the material that's employed, which are then kind of destroyed or um, yeah, made kind of unruly through these different technical operations. Like in, in, in Tamlitz's writing, there's almost this idea of like the technology being a form of like of drag for this uh, for for the original source material, where it becomes something else um, in terms of a, a a kind of a non-normative gender position, you know, through this kind of technical processing. Yeah, I think that I'll, I think that that pretty much sums it up. That, no, that was great, Stefan. I mean, th- thank you so much for go- for going through <laughs> all, all all of the contributions. Yeah. It's it's such a rich dossier, and um, you know the the contributions are so creative. Um, I mean, it sort of was occurring to me as 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 you were as you were describing them one after the other that sort of so many of them kind of hinge on this dissonance between the kind of the human and the machine and or the, the sort of original and the re, and the reproduction and, and the sort of human qualities as the sort of excess you know I guess the machinic and the human both have a certain sort of excess that gets re, reproduced in the work mm-hmm. that kind of the element that's kind of incommensurate, you know, to both, it's re- it sort of does seem like one of the artistic projects around machine listening is to sort of continually point to that in- incommensurable difference, which is often, you know, the project of, let's say, the um, companies, the big tech companies producing machine listening is possibly to kind of obliterate th- that difference or at least to sort of make the human subject somehow indistinguishable let's say, from the voice assistant. And one of the things that we, one of the feedback that we got from Unsound on our sort of initial, you know, essay was that it was sort of quite, you know, pessimistic and critical and sort of focusing on a certain sort of techno politics that's always already captured by capital and is in a way leaves us sort of needing to work against machine listening, you know. So the title of the first Zoom sort of session we proposed was against the coming world of listening machines. And I'm just mm-hmm. sort of wondering um, how you feel about those, you know, utopian and dystopian kind of horizons. Um, I think, you know, one of the great things about the works that you described is the imagination is sort of put to work in, you know, re- really positive ways. Um, the quest, These technologies are not taken as sort of um, intrinsically... Um, re- repressive, but sort of as as plat- platforms for some kind of, if not emancipatory, at least un- unruly, you know, as you've put a um, k- kind of expression. So I-, I wonder if you could say something about your sense of the politics of machine listening across this sort of spectrum from the utopian to the dystopian horizons of it. Yeah, I, I, I think that for me, a really important distinction um, to be made when speaking about any technology is the distinction between like a uh, the utility of a technology and then its technical operational logic like the operational logic which is underlying it um, and that's something that I am very much influenced by the the thought of Gilbert Simondon um, especially the way that yeah he distinguishes between how a technology is used within a certain cultural context and then what the machine is actually doing. And Simondon um, 
you know, speaks about, you know, kind of the, the alienation of subjugated peoples to um, the machines in terms of not really being able to understand how that technology can actually behave or can be used in, in, in ways that are in contrast to utility. I mean, you know, uh, I, I was being a little bit, I think, provocative, let's say, in the um, the dossier uh, by not um, speaking uh, very much to the very insidious uses that you just uh, spoke of in terms of like kind of, yeah, the vested interests of, of technical com of, of tech companies and then also governments. Um, I mean, there's uh, a lot of vital work that I know that you guys are in dialogue with and um, that, that speaks to that. I suppose what I was interested in doing was kind of just drawing attention to the fact that much, um, especially in the, the history of electronic music more generally, you know, there's been a, a long history of, of people who have been on kind of the outskirts of experimental music, who have been using technologies that are designed to do a specific thing, especially technologies that are designed by the industrial military complex, especially in the context of like the vocoder, you know, and then kind of discovering something else. And there being this, as, as you said, I, I, I like this term of like, like thinking about the excessiveness, both of technical activity, of rationality, and also of like the design, like the design um, of a of a specific tool. One can even think of like you know, it's like I mean the, the dawn of like you know house and techno, um, and of course like acid house. I mean it really comes from taking a tool that was supposed to be used for like like dad rock bands to kind of like jam to, and then discovering that there's this entirely there's a there's a new world. There's an both both in terms of like you know. Um, aesthetics and in terms of like kind of the sociality that emerged around this specific kind of music. So I, I guess I'm like to go to the question of uh, or the duality, let's say, between like the, the techno pessimists and the techno files. I'm I'm totally um, agnostic. You know, um, all what I'm interested in is trying to attend to the um, the specificity of the technical object that we're working with and trying to then understand you know what's actually going on even if it's a black box like in the context of a machine listening uh, algorithm that's driven by deep learning i mean it's literally an it's an incomprehensible space it's a n-dimensional space of statistical inference that many of the people who are training these things like don't even really understand what's going on under the hood for me i guess um what's interesting is yeah trying to find the specific tools that will then be able to offer um yeah, a, a deterring. Um, there, 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 are, there are machine listening softwares that are so trained and so functional that, you know, like the only thing that they can do outside of, you know, the thing that they're designed for in the case of WaveNet is make this incomprehensible babble. For me, that is a source of at least some sort of potential. Emancipatory potential, I don't know, but at least there, there are cracks, you know? And for me, uh, a, a really important theorist in, in, in thinking about all these things is, uh, is Benjamin Bratton and his thought around um, synthetic sensation and how, yeah, there's, there's a, uh, an accidental uh, kind of, let's say, I mean, the way that I interpret it is almost this kind of like machinic alterity, which is present in certain emergent superstructures um, uh, in digital technology, which actually might project elsewhere than the kind of Silicon Valley ideologues who are, you know, kind of extracting the hell out of all of us. And for me, uh, that's that's at least cause for some sort of positivity. But nevertheless, I would say that um, it's always specific to, you know, the technology that we're speaking of. It depends how it was trained. Like, 
you know, for me, I mean, in my own work, oftentimes I'm, I'm working with unsupervised learning. So the data sets aren't labeled before such that the machine listener is kind of inferring like deep statistical kind of knowledge about whatever it's, it's dealing with. In the case of um, Deviant Chain, this, this work of mine, it's like we trained this, this, this corpus on like reading like readings of like Negristani and then also like Luddite texts and all these kind of like totally like a smorgasbord of just kind of like yeah uh, different theoretical positions around kind of like philosophies of technology and philosophies of synthetic sensation and then from that corpus um, the machine listening software kind of made this um, you know uh, if you guys are familiar with these terms of like like feature extraction and stuff like this like these features um, that, that, that the machine is hearing that are totally incomprehensible to us, um, but are nevertheless these kind of like high dimensional um, parameters, uh, which it's seeing as being like, this is the most crucial information of Stefan reading this neo-Luddite text, you know, but it, it doesn't understand any content, you know, it's just kind of um, inferring kind of, yeah, uh, this, this kind of deep statistical structure that, you know, uh, has nothing, has very little to do perhaps I mean, I can't, I can't really speak to what it actually has to do with the, the meaning of the text, but I know that the output is extremely strange because these features aren't correlated to, to any categories that we have intuitively. Um, and so when those things are unleashed, then kind of uh, a strangeness kind of unfolds. And, and yeah, like I say, this is something that's very much influenced, I think, by, uh, by Bratton's um, conception of machinic sensation and machinic thought, and indeed rationality in some ways as being very different than our ideas of rationality. So for me, that's that's definitely, um, that has political ramifications for sure. I think that it's, um, it's uh, interesting maybe to bring up the idea of like inhumanism versus post-humanism. Like I'm very much interested in this idea of like taking like uh, a rational system, a rational technical system and um, not seeing like how I can interface it with my body or something like this in this kind of post-human context, but rather push the technology as far as it will go in terms of what it actually does. Um, and then seeing what happens. So there's this humanist self-portrait, which is projected onto the, the, the technical activity, but then the technical activity goes, goes elsewhere. And I would see that as being kind of like parallel to um, this kind of this, uh, neo-Copernican sensibility that like maybe rational activity might be um, facilitating where um, it projects us elsewhere than we thought, if that makes sense. And for me, that's, yeah, that's, that's an intrinsically political um, thing insofar as it's, um, it's questioning this, uh, the rigidity, the givenness of the human that we started with. I mean, will that be unleashed? Um, you know, uh, will the will the possibility of that be unleashed um, in terms of the way that these technologies are being developed? Um, probably not by Facebook, that's for sure. But um, like I say, I, this is one of the reasons why I brought up um, uh, Google WaveNet as well. It's like even with this kind of like hegemonic, you know, kind of um, force behind it, there's still kind of some sort of line of flight uh, which is possible. This is a stupid thing to say, but I was just going to say that you know Skynet didn't know what they were producing, either. So why why should, why should <laughs> yeah, yeah, wave yeah. it? But, yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> this recording was produced by Mara Schwitvega for Liquid Architecture on the land of the Boon Wurrung and Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners of this land and recognize that sovereignty has never been ceded. 
we pay our respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. Liquid Architecture is an Australian organization for artists working with sound and listening. To learn more head to liquidarchitecture.org.au